So I'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, from verses 3 to 10. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, from 3 to 10. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound structure of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unwealthy, unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil, spirit, uh, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness, godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Andres, for um, praying and for reading. It is always my pleasure to welcome all those who are visiting at the first time or haven't been around for some time. Very warm welcome. You'll have a chance to briefly introduce yourself later. I know it's always a, a slight embarrassment, but it's, we, we're very glad and happy to welcome everyone. Um, so actually today, I'm not sure whether all, all of you are aware, this is the first Advent Sunday, which makes it an official date from which you can start to listen to Christmas music. And I have a little confession to make. I actually had um, a Christmas jazz playlist in my car on my way from Padova today, and it made me happy. <laughs> so, uh, thanks, Andres, for the open mic and the introduction of the theme of happiness and contentment and satisfaction. This is our theme today, contentment, satisfaction, happiness. So let me kick us off with the question, are you happy? Are you happy? Now, before you dive in in thinking about it too deeply, um, let me ask the question from a different angle. What sometimes prevents you from being happy? Um, it is all sorts of worries, isn't it? Worries about yesterday, worries about today, worries about tomorrow. Now, Bobby McFerrin famously suggests an easy antidote to unhappiness. Here is a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. If only that would be so easy. Don't worry, be happy. We live in the society that is constantly worried. Why? because it's unsatisfied. Bobby McFerrin's song has little influence on today's people. Society is constantly bombarded with one single idea. If only you would have this one thing, one thing, you would be happy. 
And so are we as Christians. We sometimes reason, or rather the opposite of reason. Life is difficult. This advert promises me a new life. And I really want it to be true. Now, musicians, musicians across the decades have tried to capture the sentiment. I'm not sure why I pick all the songs today and all the singing, but they have tried to capture this sentiment too. See if you can spot some of the worldviews in these couple of songs. So here goes the first few lines. I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. Life in plastic. It's fantastic. Is it 90s? Yeah, sentiment of 90s. Aqua, I googled it up to make sure I get the band right. Great. All the questions about that song with Annette after the service, okay? Um, here's the second one. It ain't much I'm asking. If you want the truth, here's to the future for the dreams of youth. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all, and I want it now. Queen. Queen. Thanks, you. Thanks, Carlos. So, um, the world and its pressure of materialism, of all, now, instant, it is one thing. And, and, and we as Christians, we have learned to try to sort of re resist it, and it's not easy. We're going to be, continue to be thinking about that today. But things become really, really tough for Christians when the, the, the worldview of pursuit of the worldly things is encouraged in the church. Now, I have all the hopes for the Grace Church. This week, this week I was reminded of my farewell uh, chat with, with Ruth, with Ruth Firth, Malcolm's wife. They used to be around here for 12 years. This is what she said on parting about Grace Church. We have had our ups and downs, but it has been easy. It's a happy church. Now, friends, no matter how heartwarming it was to hear from, from Ruth, and no matter how true it is, and I actually believe it is, my duty today is to teach and urge these things. Glance at chapter 6 and verse 2. Teach and urge these things. Why? Because forewarned is forearmed. So this is where we left. This is where we left off last Sunday. Paul says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. What are these things? And from chapter 2, we have been learning that Grace Church is an outward-looking church that reflects the heart of God for salvation of all people. An orderly church with an orderly leadership. Why was that important? Because the mission of the church should be buttressed by godly living. True godliness is found nowhere else but in Jesus. And it strives for heaven. But in the same time, true godliness is very down to earth. It expresses in our normal relationships in church, in family, 
and in workplace. Now, why does Paul have to tell this to Timothy again? Why? Because there are still some people around the church who teach different doctrines. Uh, you can glance in verse 3, is if anyone, uh, two times in verse 4, he, he. So Paul firstly points to the discontentment of the false teachers in verses 3, or, or rather 2 to 5. And the result of it. But then Paul urges the church to be different. Contentment of the people of God. That's what we're going to be thinking from verses 6 to 10. So, so firstly, today, from verses 3 to 5, discontentment of the false teachers and its result. Now, we already saw how these false teachers are setting up man-made rules in the church. Don't eat this, don't marry, and, and so on. And they were essentially saying one thing that godliness, godliness is about bodily training. Whereas Paul has said that godliness is, is about Jesus and belonging to him. But now Paul gets down to the particulars. We should not be surprised to learn that their teaching does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and with Paul's teaching that accords with godliness. We shouldn't be surprised about that. People are always keen to pit Paul against Jesus. You have probably heard people say these things. Oh, Jesus was always so inclusive. He never spoke against homosexual practice being wrong. He was loving and accepting towards all. Oh, where's Paul? Paul is the evil one, condemning gay people to the eternal torment. Now, I know someone who left the tra traditional church and set up the inclusive church. His basic reason for doing it was around the subject of homosexuality. He advocates for love and he advocates for inclusivity. But at the same time, he zealously campaigns against the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul. Now, we should be aware of teachers like him so that we are not fooled by clever words. And in fact, clever words is the only thing that they'll ever be. Because glance at verse 4 and 5. The truth, in truth, they know nothing. And verse 5, they are depraved in mind, these false teachers. Depraved, deprived of the truth. What well, is funny that precisely such people like to make the biggest noise in the church. Verse 4, they, 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 their sick craving for controversy produces quarrels about words, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. There is no peace. There is no unity. And the, because they are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, it is all imagination for them. Truth becomes very, very subjective. Truth is how I feel about things, how I feel about God, 
how I feel about church, how I feel about relationships. Now, you would think this is not a sensible pursuit at all. Why would anyone want to be a false teacher? What is to be gained by it? It sounds so sad. What could possibly be gained from it? Well, it turns out there is something. The false teachers and those who listen to them, verse 5, have imagined that godliness can serve as the means of gain. Verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That is, it brings some money. And very often it brings some very good money. I think that is how the pagan culture of Ephesus worked. The whole Artemis, you might have heard Artemis Temple, Temple of Diana, um, you know, the, the, the whole religion brought not a little gain uh, to someone like the silversmith Demetrius in Acts 19. And he was very, very upset when the gospel destroyed his business. So maybe now these false teachers in Ephesus, they were thinking about the Christianity along the same lines. You know, that it, it's supposed to bring some gain too. At least it appears they did. You know, the, the thinking, there must be some kind of return to my devotion to Jesus thing. Either material possession or status or blessing uh, or something else. There must be some sort of return. Now, last week, as, as I was preparing this talk, I stumbled on this course uh, offered by the American televangelist. I know it already sounds promising. <laughs> now, well, wait till you hear this, his name. It gets even more promising. His name is Creflo Dollar. <laughs> Creflo Dollar. It smells of money already, doesn't it? Now, he offers in this course a thing called El Shaddai blessing. El Shaddai means God Almighty in Hebrew, God who is more than enough. So, so here comes the selling point for the course. It is, worth, it, is worth being, it is not worth being content with bare minimum. If God seek to richly bless you, of course, materially, of course, it is not worth being content content with bare minimum if God seeks to bless you richly. Well, my, one of my friends um, made a sarcastic comment about it. How can you stand in the way of God's blessing? How can you? But do you realize, do you realize what he does here? What he advertises here? He creates a discontentment in the people of God, in people's lives. It's so evil. It makes them think that godly living is the means of gaining, is the means of gaining promotion. It's the means of gaining promotion to earn more money, to buy a bigger house, to travel the world in a greater style. It creates all sorts of discontentment in the people of God. It's not worth being content with bare minimum. Now, Paul has already made a comment about such teaching in chapter 4. Do you remember? It comes from deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Though the, 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They are puffed up with conceit and produce dissension and friction, as we saw in today's passage. What a contrast it is with Paul's charge in chapter 1-5. If you have Bibles in your hands open, turn to chapter 1 and verse 5 and see the contrast in Paul. Chapter 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge, the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Completely opposite to the false teachers in Ephesus. Opposite to what we hear from someone like Creflo Dollar. Now, discontentment of the false teachers, godliness isn't a means of gain, but that doesn't mean that there is no gain in godliness. So that brings us to the, my second point and contentment of the people of God. Now, glance at verse 6 with me. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, I love these Charles Spurgeon's one-liners. Here is a brilliant one. Here's what he says about contentment. Content with the divine will is better than the increase of riches or removal of affliction. Spurgeon continues, listen. Pray to your great Lord so to strengthen you and ease your heart that your only care may be to please him and that you may be released from all other care. Of course, we know that it is easier said than done because the world tells us that money can buy happiness. And verse 6 differs. Not money, but True contentment is essential to happiness. Now, why can't money buy happiness? Because that's literally the mantra of the, 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 you know, the surrounding culture. Why? Because there is never enough of it. That's why. Now, someone asked a question to uh, John Rockefeller, the oil baron and philanthropist of the late 19th, in the early 20th century, here's the question that someone asked to him. How much money is enough money? And his, here is his reply. Always, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Now, Paul says there is another reason why the pursuit of gain will leave you unsatisfied. We will ultimately have to Part with it. That's why. When Rockefeller died, someone else asked a question to his accountant. How much did he leave? Without blinking an eye, the accountant replied, everything. He left everything. And we simply cannot take anything with us out of this world. It is a plain truth. Glance at verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything 
out of the world. Just this week, I asked Klaus here, who was leading our singing, about his son, Edmund. If he or Eileen by any chance spotted at, at his birth on Edmund's hand a Rolex watch as he was just born, or perhaps a golden crucifix, and, and they, they denied it to be true. So, so, and so we, so we take nothing, nothing out of this world as we have taken nothing into this world. Friends, we can take nothing with us out of this world apart from godliness. This is the only thing that travels with us. Remember chapter 4, verse 8, godliness is of value in every way. Why? As it holds promise to the present life, it is the best life to live now with Jesus. And also for the life to come, because this is the only, the only way to the eternal life. Godliness in Jesus. Now this is really, really challenging stuff. I do realize that. From verse 4, Paul talks not about the false teachers anymore. No. He talks to all Christians. We, uh, um, uh, verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8, we, it's all the time we. Now, how is the teaching on contentment challenging? Now, on the one hand, we know we will not be able to take anything to heaven. Kind of, we understand that. We know that. But on the other hand, we sometimes quietly wonder if, if these things could bring heaven to earth, namely happiness. You know, if these things could do that by any chance. If only I would find a spouse. If only I got this job in Western Europe or hopefully in America. Um, the American dream, if only I had this new gadget, I would be happy. That would be enough. And it's such a lie, it's never enough. I would be content. No, I wouldn't. The contentment, the contentment language of verse 8, class of verse 8, it simply doesn't resonate with us so powerfully. Paul says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Why does this truth doesn't resonate with us so powerfully often? Because we hear Paul say if we should be that we should be satisfied with bare minimum. That's what we hear Paul saying. And so we remember the Creflo Dollar guy saying that we should not really settle for bare minimum. And I'm not saying that we remember. Hopefully we do not remember that. But people often remember that. That is why the truisms of this world often seem so appealing to us. You might have heard these truisms along the lines. Everyone goes through hardships. But it is better to cry in Mercedes Benz than in Opel Cadet. <laughs> or in public transport. <laughs> yes, yes. All, all of us students, right? I may be unhappy, but at least I am unhappy in style. But in reality, guys, when real hardships hit, 
It doesn't matter where you sit. It doesn't matter where you, what you wear. It doesn't matter where you live. Suddenly, none of these things, none of these things matter anymore when real hardships hit. Now, friends, picture yourselves on the deathbed. Not that this is a pleasant sight to picture, to do, right? Most of us are still so young, so we don't want to do that. But, but for the sake of illustration, picture yourselves on the deathbed. Now, list all the achievements. Now, list all the recognitions. List all the career moves, bonuses, possessions, places that you've been, experiences that you've had. Picture and list all these things in your mind. And think about this, money, power, sex, health, they are all used to sell us things that promise so much, but cannot deliver what God alone can give. It's happiness. God alone can give true, true happiness. On our deathbed, it will be crystal, crystal clear that all that matters is Jesus. Knowing him and having him as your Lord and as your Savior, there is no greater thing, no greater gain. It will be so crystal clear then. Why it's sometimes not so crystal clear to us now. And Paul says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus. So what is your view of contentment? Are you happy? Are you content? Do you think of it um, as, as a grudge, you know, grudgingly as settling for bare minimum? Or, quite the opposite, you say, if I have Jesus, I have everything. I have more than enough. I have a real El Shaddai blessing. Now, Paul would want us to choose the latter. Contentment with food and clothing comes from realizing, not that I have to be content with bare minimum, no. It comes from realizing that I have so much in Jesus already now. I have to quote Charles Spurgeon's again. He says, ah, you will never have enough till you get Christ. But when you have him, you will be full to the brim. Contentment is the peculiar jewel of the beloved of the Lord Jesus. Now, I cannot read minds. Sometimes people think that pastors can read people's minds. It's, uh, I cannot. But maybe, maybe you have been sitting here and thinking to yourself, well, can't I have both? Jesus and money? What's wrong with that? Now, I'd want to address this, this carefully because there is a view out there that somehow money in itself is evil. It's bad. And that rich people are automatically corrupt. They are bad people. But Paul, Paul is not saying that here. Can you be well off and Christian? Of course you can. Yes, of course you can. Now, before COVID, every spring I used to attend pastors' conference in UK. I also used that time to see um, 
our friends and partners uh, in the gospel in London. And one time I stayed in the house uh, of a Christian who also is a senior manager in a global company that provides audit, taxes, and advisory. And it just struck me that it was a nice house, but it was a simple house in the central London. It was a simple house. He drove a simple car, probably 1991 Mercedes, slightly rusty already. He wasn't really after money for himself, nor for his children. In fact, in fact, his children weren't even under pressure to uh, go to university. So two of his three children ended up not going to university. They, they found different jobs. And they, this family and, and the husband, he had a reputation for being incredibly generous towards the work of God and towards the people of God. They always had a Christian student staying with them in the house who otherwise wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to afford living in the central London and study. They were incredibly generous. So, so, my friends, it is not about having Jesus and money per se. No. It's not about being poor or rich per se. It is about what we desire most. What we desire most. What are we constantly concerned and worried most about? So here Paul talks about desire, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. He will address rich people at the very last section of chapter 6. We'll spend time in, in that in a couple of weeks' time. It's not bad to be rich. You can be rich and not to desire to be rich. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. What do you ultimately desire? Is it just a little bit more of the things of this world, or is it Jesus? Let us strive to design knowing more Jesus, having more Jesus. Is wanting just a bit more so harmful, really? Is it so harmful? Yes, Paul says. Pursuing wealth, desiring more wealth, will destroy you. Just think, how come some, how come some of the people who have lots of money are at the same time the most unhappy and depressed people on the face of the earth? They end up committing suicide or accidentally dying because of the abuse of substance. First, and for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I was just for, I was curious, and I googled the list of celebrities, actors, singers who have committed suicide on an uh, IMBD. Kurt Cobain, Keith Flint, prodigy. Robin Williams, Whitney Houston, 
And the list went on and on and on, and I was genuinely shocked about how long it was. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It is dangerous, Paul says, to desire to be rich. So friends, let us, let us retain the right perspective. Let us constantly remind ourselves, if only I have Jesus, I have enough. I don't need anything else because nothing else will accompany me to heaven. Nothing else. Jesus is my greatest gain now and in eternity. Now, it must change how we think about singing what is all I need for Christmas what we place in you, right? The Christmas song number one of all times. So, friends, pursue devotion to Him. To Him. That is the only thing that really matters. Great indeed, Paul says, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so, we, so will we. If we remain in him, if he remains our best, if he remains our joy, if he remains our righteousness. Amen.